from KZUM Lincoln and KZUM HD, this is the Real Psychobabble Podcast. I'm Cody. And I'm Roll. And we have made it to the final episode of season two of the Real Psychobabble podcast. Uh, you know, we've made it, we kind of started at a different place in the summer. Now we're on public radio, ending in a good place, going to take a short break and then pick back up where we left off in January. For season three. Yeah, season three coming at you soon. Yeah, this is going to be a really great episode. It's probably going to be one of the better episodes yeah. we've done in a while. Yeah, so maybe save the best for last, but we are joined today by resident concussion expert, Dr. Susan Davies. So Dr. Davies, thank you so much for joining us today. And if you could, for our babblers out there, give maybe a brief introduction about who you are, where you're from, and the work that you do. Sure, well thank you for having me. Um, I am a professor of school psychology at the University of Dayton in Dayton, Ohio. Um, I worked for a number of years as a school psychologist in the Cincinnati, Ohio area, and I loved that, but I always kind of taught adjunct at nearby universities um, and just kind of wanted to go into a position where I would be able to train future school psychologists. So I've been at UD for um, 12 years and I do all of the program coordination and so forth. I love working with my graduate students and then my area of research is traumatic brain injuries, especially looking at how schools can better transition students who've had brain injuries of all severity levels back to school and how we can do stronger monitoring of their symptoms and their progress, providing strong social and emotional and academic support to the students, and how we can also work with their families. Yeah, I am really excited for our babblers to hear all of that, because I think, you know, we're a few weeks removed from School Psych Awareness Week, and I think something that just consistently plagues our field is a lot of misinformation or just misunderstanding about what school psychology is and what a school psychologist does. So I think it's yep. really exciting to hear how you've been able to, you know, work in so many different areas within this field, doing a lot of amazing research. And, uh, you know, I think that's going to be a really cool message for our babblers to take away from today. Yeah, thank you. And that really kind of is my other area of research is looking at shortage issues. Um, we're really active in Ohio trying to figure out how we can better attract people into this wonderful profession and um, keep them engaged in school psychology for many years. Yeah, that's great. That's really, really great. Well, uh, you know, the, the topic today is concussions, which, you know, is obviously a very broad topic. But why don't we start, I guess, in the most logical place with kind of defining what a concussion is or what concussion, mild traumatic brain injury, some terms that we tend to use, what, what those mean? Yes, well, it is a mild brain injury. And, uh, you know, a lot of people hear about concussions in sports, but they can be caused by all different kinds of things, playground accidents and falls. And it's a disruption of the neurochemistry and the 
kind of symptoms that we see a lot of times with concussion are physical, like headaches and nausea and dizziness. And then in school, we see some academic repercussions, like trouble remembering things and learning new information. Um, so the, um, the symptoms can persist over time. And um, sometimes when students aren't getting the appropriate services, then they can um, really have some persistent difficulties. Right, right. And I, I have a, another follow-up question from that, which is, so concussion, I feel like, has been more at the forefront of conversations in, in our field and in the medical field and probably in the last maybe decade or so, but this is, you know, as a condition, something that has obviously been around longer than 10 years. But why do we think, or why do you think in your experience, you've seen kind of an increase in conversation around this issue? I think it's largely because of the media attention to concussions in athletes and in military personnel. And so there have been some really high profile concussion cases. And so then it's trickled down into our student population of just that increased awareness. Right. And, you know, thinking about how things have trickled down into kind of a youth population, which is what we serve in our practice as school psychologists. Um, you know, I have questions that I would like to kind of separate into a few different areas. But first, uh, with youth, given that, you know, a, a mild traumatic brain injury is an invisible injury, it's much different than, you know, if a child breaks their leg, that's a very obvious injury. Um, how important is it on, from the perspective of a youth who maybe has experienced a concussion? How, is important, how important is it that that's reported to an adult or a coach or an athletic trainer? It's critical. And one of the complicating factors is that a person who has sustained a concussion, um, often they aren't aware that they that they had a concussion because their um, self-awareness may actually be affected by their mild traumatic brain injury. So one thing that um, is really important is to educate everyone about how concussions can be sustained and what the symptoms look like so that teammates and teachers and playground monitors are more aware of what might be a concussion and reporting that to appropriate people. And then, of course, educating students themselves um, and not just our student athletes so that they can have that stronger self-awareness of, oh, you know, I had this fall or took this blow to the head. Um, and I need to let somebody know. Right, right. And I would say, too, uh, in the work that I've done here in Lincoln, something that tends to come up is, especially at the high school level, there's a lot of effort to educate the athletes and educate the coaching staff about you know, how to spot the warning signs and how important it is to report those symptoms. But outside of the, the knowledge piece, like let's say that the athletes do know what concussions are and understand reporting, why would students and athletes still then not report a concussion? Well, I think there's a lot of pressure to just kind of be tough, be strong, get back in the game, not let their teammates down. Um, and so I think it starts with making sure that coaches and athletic trainers um, and the parents of student athletes 
help empower their children to value their health and to help them understand that taking a short break after a concussion or a suspected concussion really can ultimately help them get back to play sooner because if they continue to play while they have symptoms, it can put them at risk for additional injury and prolonged um, absence from play and prolonged symptoms and so forth. Um, but we, we definitely still, especially in our high school athletic world, um, see that, that pressure that students put on themselves or that coaches and parents and teammates put on them to just kind of like be tough, yeah. get, get back into play. Thinking about youth, like youth individuals, I'm kind of sitting back here and listening. I know Dr. Davies is one of the foremost leaders in this area and especially within school psychology and Cody and Dr. Napolitano doing the work. So I'm kind of just listening right now. <laughs> I have questions that I'm thinking of like in terms of what, what I would do if I was a school psychologist or a mental health practitioner in schools. And I'm thinking behaviorally, what kind of symptoms in the classroom, how would that affect, how would a concussion affect a student in a classroom who has undergone some sort of concussion? Um, and I'm, I'm thinking about this question because I think sometimes you might hear um, educators be like, oh, they're being lazy or they're just not right. being able to pay attention. And I'm like, when you have an injury like a concussion, it really does impact you behaviorally where it's hard yeah. to focus. You know, you get tired, you want to sleep. So what are some of those other symptoms that uh, we should be looking out for as educators and as professionals? Well, I was going to say the very same thing that you just mentioned. It looks, it often looks like laziness or it looks like attention deficit disorder that um, the student may just be kind of spacey, producing subpar work and um, slow to, learn material, um, not being as organized. So all of those things look like disengagement, and that can be really frustrating for teachers. Uh, where I see this as a particular difficulty is students who are, or who are injured during the summer, and then they start back to school while they still have symptoms, and they have teachers who don't know them. Um, so if a student's injured during the school year, you know, a lot of times the teachers can be fantastic informants of this is their level of performance and engagement prior to the injury, and then this is what's happening now. But when they start back to school and they're with teachers who don't know them, um, they're not as easily able to make behavioral and academic comparisons. Right. And then I think, you know, what potentially magnifies that effect and those behavioral manifestations in the classroom, uh, could you speak to maybe, you know, outside of you know, the, the mechanisms of the injury and the kind of direct correlation with some of those behavioral symptoms to how that is influenced by or impacted by mental health symptoms. Yeah, so this is something um, our research team at the University of Dayton was really looking at carefully last year. Um, we did some, some interviews with students of all ages who had sustained concussions and really talked to them about this social and emotional piece. Um, and it's an, it's an interesting dynamic of some of these kind of social and emotional symptoms of feeling um, stressed and anxious, depressed, um, isolated and lonely, some of that may be a direct effect of the injury, that some of the changes to the brain's neurochemistry after an injury um, makes the student more prone to maybe some of these 
things that were already going on, like maybe they were already had a little bit of anxiety and the concussion can make it worse, or maybe they were already prone to depression. The concussion can make it worse because of the neurochemical changes. But then you also have situational variables that come into play that can lead to some of these mental health issues. So for example, if a student is, um, the, the, if very much of their identity is tied to their um, skills as an athlete and they're removed from play for a long period of time while they are recovering, that can affect their their relationships and their self-esteem and so forth. Um, likewise, if you have really and um, strong students academically and they're feeling all of these academic challenges, that are linked to their concussion, it's harder to focus on reading, it's um, tough to get some of these big projects completed, that can also lead to some stress and anxiety. And those are students we often see hiding symptoms as well because they don't want to have all of their schoolwork building up, and that is incredibly stressful. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I would say uh, I've been able to see working with youth in this in this population from a few different angles, both from a research perspective, but also in clinical work. And so now where I'm at in a, in a clinical placement is working with youth who are referred to um, an outpatient or inpatient clinic for uh, brain injury. And something that I use a lot that I like, you, you referenced this and what you were just saying with those neurochemical changes, concussion really is kind of the great amplifier is the term I like to use, where you know, like you said, you might have had a little bit of anxiety or predisposition to some type of mental health uh, concern. And when you have that concussion, your brain is functionally changing. And, you know, if you were anxious before, maybe you're not as good at tamping down some of those feelings or maybe those coping skills that you did have to kind of put those anxious feelings away are now not as effective. And so then those mental health symptoms come up to the forefront. Right. Absolutely. And that's one of the reasons that we really want to better train school personnel. And I I focus a lot on school psychologists, but also school counselors and nurses and teachers and administrators so that they can be attuned to some of these issues. And the school is such a logical place to provide some support and services to help alleviate some of those mental health symptoms. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, another thing that you you mentioned, too, is kind of looking from an ecological perspective, which is something that we focus on a lot in our training, where um, there have been a lot of youth that I've worked with where mental health was a concern, even though they were referred because of an injury, where they might have been a multi-sport athlete, and then had maybe two concussions within the past year and then cut off all sports, which meant they cut off all their social interaction. And then now they're left in a place where, you know, the thing that was central to their identity is now gone. What are we going to do to to fill those gaps? And I think that's a challenge for us. I think too, and maybe Raul, you can speak to this, um, settings outside of school, like in detention centers, um, how do we work with youth there who maybe have experienced a brain injury and how does that look different? Yeah, I think that's a great kind of transition. So my experience with the concussion um, kind of surveys and screening has been recently, I work at the um, 
Juvenile Detention Center in Lincoln um, as a mental health uh, counselor uh, for my community practicum side. And Cody's been working also with some people locally who they want to get more information on concussions. And in the population that I'm working in, in the, in the juvenile setting, um, a lot of the youth who've been there have had concussions, and they're not due to sports. There are a lot of them due to like some sort of physical violence, some sort of um, you know head trauma due to like fighting, or in some serious cases, they're due to some sort of traumatic event um, right. that is is really impacting them, and they don't know what's happening to them behaviorally. They already have kind of like what came first, the chicken or the egg type of deal, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but one thing that I've been able to do, and as they've been um, do, uh, ass- using the screeners as assessments and and seeing kind of what kind of head trauma the, the youth have had is also putting together, if there is a traumatic piece, how do we assess that also when we're doing that? Um, one thing that I noticed when they were doing the screeners, it wasn't due to sports, it wasn't due to um, like a falling off a bike or something, is due to some sort of like violence uh, occurrence that happened, situation that occurred. So um, right. it's, just, it's just different. I'm, I mean, head trauma can come from pretty much so many different things that we don't really think about. So, Right. But I think that's such an important point to bring up because with increased attention and media focus and everything on concussions, um, I do think our student athletes are, are generally pretty well followed, especially the ones at the high school level yeah. where they have um, an athletic trainer. Yeah. They're often um, very aware of concussions and they're following a return to play protocol. Uh, I think a lot of schools are getting better at looking at kind of this return to learn, return to school kind of protocol. But when it's youth who are injured through or younger children who are injured through um, sports or kids of all ages who are injured through um, fights, um, accidents, and just everyday play, abuse, you're absolutely right. And um, many people aren't as aware of maybe that their behaviors or some of their issues could be linked to a brain injury. Yep, yep. And on some of these youth too um, have been identified, maybe have an IEP or some sort of a learning disability or some sort of disability just in general on top of the fighting. And it just, like like Cody said, the great amplifier. And right. um, in some particular cases, some of the youth are really violent or have some sort of conduct disorder or ODD. And and I think I, I see people who interact with them sometimes have a, a smaller threshold to, to cope and to work with them when I think they're probably the youth who need it the most. And, and I do focus on the behavioral piece a lot just... Um, and I'm really happy to hear you kind of um, talk about that social emotional piece. I don't think I've, I've heard that spoken about. So that was really great to hear you say that and how important Thanks. it is to, to, to follow that. So, Well, one thing you brought up, Dr. Davies, just then was about resources. And I do see, you know, within the world of concussion management, there's obviously tons of variability across, you know, different settings, whether it be large school districts or small school districts or rural versus urban sites. Um, but I think, you know, in general, the point you make is an important one that athletes tend to receive at least whatever resources or services are available, the best of them. Um, you know, it's, they're more likely to, you know, have mechanisms where they are at least reported because these injuries probably occur at practice or in a game and they have staff there like an athletic trainer or coaches who can then help facilitate that, that information then to 
uh, school staff or the concussion management team. But if you do have those non-athletes that have experienced potentially a concussive injury, what are things that parents need to know who, you know, like what's the next step if my child, if I think that my child has suffered a concussion, what does a parent do? Um, I, I think one of the main points of advice I would give to parents is to not just notify the teachers because many teachers um, have received very little training about concussions and brain injuries. So making sure that they link in other school personnel, be it the nurse, the school counselor, or the school psychologist, and to request that someone other than a teacher really kind of help manage that process of um, tracking their recovery, um, monitoring their symptoms, being a kind of liaison between the parents and the school. Um, because especially when you have a high school student and they have all of these different teachers um, who may have different levels of comfort with putting appropriate adjustments into place, it, it can just really help to have um, a, ideally a team process where everybody's coming together and they're on the same page and they're um, putting the same kinds of adjustments into class as possible. Um, but if there can be one person who is sort of identified as this is this is the concussion team leader. This is the person who's going to be a good source of communication between medical personnel, the home, athletic personnel, if that's applicable. Um, because then we can help make sure that the student's injury and the, the school's response to the injury is documented. That's particularly helpful if there is a, a second injury so that the um, the school and the parents and the medical providers have a good record of the symptomology, how intense the symptoms were, how long they lasted, how long adjustments needed to be put in place. And by adjustments, I mean things like modified assignments, um, maybe leaving the class to transition between classes early or a couple of minutes late so that they're not in the, like, the crush of the loud hallway. Some some things like that. Right. You know, I'm glad you bring that up because I would say there's been a few different youth that I've worked with in the past few months that, you know, we can dip into what we would call like post-concussive syndrome where they have that prolonged recovery and they're still experiencing symptoms from an injury that occurred uh, several months ago where I had a few that it was years past that injury where they were still experiencing symptoms and there was that huge mental health component that, you know, just seemed to be kind of missed. And I think we're, we're doing a disservice to our youth if we don't have some type of structure like a concussion management team and like professionals who are educated and trained on how to address these issues and how to support youth in school settings or detention settings. Um, you know, I think this would be a nice plug here for uh, some of what my role is in, in this world. Um, and... Lincoln at UNL, I manage a training grant for our pre-service school psychology graduate students, where kind of what you just said is what we're trying to do. We've identified that there are some practice gaps. We need concussion management teams and we need 
to staff them with people who are trained and educated on how to work with these youth. And so what we're trying to do, and I think what obviously I know from working with you outside of this, that uh, you share a similar insight and in that school psychologists are uniquely positioned to take on those roles in concussion management training because, or uh, concussion management teams, because we have, you know, the assessment training, we have the mental health training, we have the, the behavioral background, we have all of these different skill sets that apply themselves really nicely to being able to support youth the best we can in those different settings. Right, absolutely. And um, it really helps when there's that, that kind of favorable ratio of school psychologists to students. Um, and that kind of ties in with this whole shortage issue, because if our school psychologists are spread too thin, then um, they're not ideally positioned to be a concussion team leader. So if we've got, got a situation where there's one school psychologist for every building or two, then they're able to really um, interact with and support students like students who've had concussions because they can regularly be there to check in with that student and consult with teachers and um, be available to the families. Absolutely. And as, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no, I have a question actually. Um, so, and this is for both of you. I'm thinking about with, with our lab, with, we do research for, on bullying research with Dr. Susan Swear, um, and we have a lot of handouts, and we refer people to a lot of sources. So do you have any um, recommendations for people who would want more information on concussions or maybe what they should do? Um, do you have a website on your own labs that you all work in, and, or is there a place that you can go to kind of figure out more information? Yes, um, the CDC has a lot of fantastic resources, um, handouts and checklists and so forth um, for brain injuries of all severity levels. I developed a set of resources through the Ohio Department of Health that focus on return to school. And that contains just some guidance documents, training videos and so forth. Um, Cody, what are some of your favorite resources? Yeah, definitely. Uh, I think the first go-to is always the CDC. I would say one thing that's really nice about some of their resources is it's like differentiated by, you know, they have resources just for parents, just for youth, and right. just for schools and school professionals. And so I think it's nice because it gives you more specific information than just like hitting the, the fast facts about concussion. Um, also a plug for, we do some work here with the Nebraska Brain Injury Alliance. And, um, I think, you know, obviously concussion management practices and school-based policy can look different in different states. And so I think state organizations are always a good place to, to look at wherever you're listening from. So, um, the Nebraska Department of Health and Human Services has some concussion related information specific to special education services that are provided here. Um, and then the Brain Injury Alliance as well. So lots yeah. of good stuff out there. No, I mean, that's great. It's, it's always nice to see. And also we could probably post some of these things on our website and yeah. and on our social and stuff. Yeah. So. Well, I would like to do, not really like a game, but kind of round out our time with you um, doing some kind of myth busting. So something that we really try to do on the show is address different kind of misconceptions or misinformation about the topics that we are presenting on and kind of trying to add in the science and refer to the research and what's being said so that we can do our best to inform our listeners. So concussion obviously has a lot of myths surrounding it. So I was wondering if 
I could present some to you and you kind of give us, you know, your, your expertise on what these really are. Sure. So the first one, and I think this one comes up a lot, is you need to lose consciousness to have a concussion. Yeah, absolutely a myth. Um, most concussions don't involve a loss of consciousness at all. And usually if somebody does lose consciousness, that might be an indicator of a more severe brain injury. Right, right. Okay, here's the next one. Um, kind of along a, a similar train of thought. You have to hit your head to get a concussion. That is a big myth. <laughs> um, and if you even just think about a football player, the um, just the blows to the body can cause the brain to rattle back and forth inside of the skull cavity. And it's that... It's that um, mechanism of movement that can cause the concussive injury. So it doesn't have to be a blow to the head at all. One of the screeners that when I was when they were giving it to the youth at the JDC was about drowning too, and I didn't even think about that when I they're doing that. So yeah, like some oxygen deprivation yeah. from, as an injury. Yeah, yeah. There is a a GIF I like to use in one of the presentations I give for a seminar where it's just like a this, a model of a skull with a brain in it, but the brain is there's a technical term but it's basically like a it's like jello essentially and so when it's hit it sloshes back and forth in the skull cavity and you know like like you just said you don't actually have to have a direct hit to end up with a concussive injury Um, another one and this is more on the side of treatment is it is recommended for you know if you do experience a concussion to kind of lock yourself away in a dark room (laughs) for days on end Oh, I was hoping you would get to that one. That's, uh, Roel, do you want to take that one or do you want me to? No, you get that one. Okay. So um, I think this is an interesting example of the pendulum swinging sort of too far in the other direction. So there's been so much attention on concussions in recent years that I think a lot of um, parents and even doctors are recommending just total rest and total isolation, um, like in a, in a dark room and no activity, absolutely no screens for a prolonged period of time. And recent studies have shown that that can actually um, increase the duration of recovery. So you have, and so this is one of the reasons also that I think these school psychologists are such good people to help monitor recovery because um, you can, it's a somebody at school to help monitor the response to light, physical and cognitive activity. So you don't want them like running around uh, recess or, you know, getting into football practice, but just some light walking and light cognitive activity to the point that it does not exacerbate symptoms is right where we want the person who's had a concussion to be. Now, once it starts to exacerbate symptoms, then you need to pull back on that, that cognitive or physical activity. Yeah. So is that, you know, research that you're seeing come out in maybe more recent years, looking more at the the aerobic activity and how that impacts concussion recovery? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Well then the, the last one I have for you, and it's kind of, I guess, maybe a little bit similar, but, um, the, the injury to the brain only occurs at the initial moment of impact, or I guess in another way, 
symptoms, if they don't occur immediately, then it's not a concussion. So that is also false, and, but that's a comp, it's a complex question. Um, and so one of the reasons that somebody who's suspected of having had a concussion goes to the hospital and they, you know, they'll get scans and so forth. Um, if they have kind of an unremarkable CAT scan or x-rays and so forth, um, that's a positive thing. And what doctors are looking at with those is to see if there's any bleeding or swelling. So sometimes that can be a bit of a delayed kind of physical reaction. Um, But what we see with more mild traumatic brain injuries is that usually the physical symptoms are what are most acute initially, but like that, the headaches and the nausea, maybe blurred vision, the nausea and blurred vision, you're going to typically expect that to be an immediate symptom. And then it'll, it'll be some of the first symptoms to resolve, but some of the the cognitive and the emotional symptoms are the ones that might not be apparent early on and that you might not see come into play for a few days. And then sometimes it's difficult to link those symptoms back to the injury. You know, if it was a fall that nobody really saw and nobody made a big deal about it, and a few days later, somebody's starting to show some of these confusion symptoms Mm -hmm. or like an up and down sort of headache, it can be difficult to link it back to the concussion. There's actually one question I have when y'all are, when Cody was asking all the myth questions, and it's the one that I always heard growing up um, when I was playing basketball. It's after you have a concussion, you're not supposed to fall asleep. Oh, that's a good one too. Cody, do you want to answer that one? Or <laughs> oh, you, you take it. You take it. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, sleep is really good for somebody who's had a concussion. Um, you, you definitely want to make sure that they're seen by a medical provider, again, to make sure that there's not something more serious going on, like um, bleeding or swelling in the brain. Um, but as long as those have been ruled out, Lots of sleep is good. So sleep disruption, those, that's a pretty um, common symptom of concussion. Somebody having trouble falling asleep or staying asleep or needing more sleep than usual. Um, and so that's a, I think that's a really good accommodation that the school can allow and provide is let that kid sleep as late as they can in the morning and, <laughs> and then head to school. You know, we have so many really early starting high schools and if somebody's recovering from a concussion and they're having trouble falling asleep and then they're having to wake up, you know, four and a half hours later, uh, I think that's just a really easy kind of uh, fix for the recovering student. Absolutely. Well, you know, I just want to take a moment here for our babblers listening in that we have been really, you know, story time for your expertise. I think you've shared an amazing amount of information and resources. Um, You know, we we always end the show with uh, what about you a week in review after we take a break. But I just want to say a quick thank you to Dr. Davies for joining us today, for sharing all of this great information, for busting some myths for us. Uh, So hopefully we have uh, our listeners out there a little bit more educated about what concussions are and what they are not. I can't wait to eat you at NASP. I'm definitely going to have to like follow Cody around and say a little plug for NASP. That'll be fun. Yeah. Uh, And we will uh, link those resources that we mentioned a few minutes ago, just in case 
we have babblers out there who want to learn a little bit more beyond what we covered today. But again, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. All right, we'll take a short break and be right back. All right, and we are back from that break to end the show with our favorite segment, What About You? A Week in Review, where we add in recommendations for things that we've been reading, watching, or listening to. Um, Another shameless plug here for our companion podcast playlist on Spotify called the Psychobabble Playlist, where you can see and listen to all of the music that we've been talking about and that our guests on the show have been talking about that we update each episode. Uh, So with that, why don't we jump right into things that we're uh, watching, reading, or listening to, and maybe have Dr. Davies start. All right. So I have on my desk the book that I'm getting ready to start is Unequal City, Race, Schools, and Perceptions of Injustice and by Carla Shedd. So this... um, is a book that our national organization, the National Association of School Psychologists, is doing as sort of an organization-wide book read. And so my colleague and I kind of started our own book club with our graduate students, where we suggested, hey, if you want to read this over break, and then the Sunday night before classes start, everybody's going to come over to my house for, um, you know, snacks and drinks and talking about this book. So yeah, that's a great um, idea. It's, a, it's an important, it's an important issue in our field. And we're really focusing on increasing the, um, the cultural sensitivity and diversity in our field. And um, so it's a really nice extension of things we're already talking about in our program. That's great. That's definitely something that I would all recommend to. Yeah, our, we might steal that idea. Yeah, which I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'm going to tell Luke about our president <laughs> of the Diversity and Ethnic Minority Affairs Committee. And it's basically throughout our department, it is uh, school psychologists, counseling psychologists, people from the uh, quantitative, qualitative, and psychometric um, department, and then the developmental learning sciences. So that sounds like a fantastic recommendation. Yeah. Yeah. We've done like, uh, I think The Hate You Give was a book that we read. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a movie on that too. But yeah, I like I like the idea of a, a formal book club and then a gathering to discuss it. That sounds awesome. That's really cool. How about, are you... And you don't have to do this like recently if you are, that's great, but any music that you've been listening to recently or that maybe your all-time favorite hits? Oh, I I, I kind of jump around with music. Um, I'm pretty excited that I'm going to the Maroon 5 concert Ooh, in September. Nice. Uh, where my daughter's Christmas present, so she can't listen to this. But um, <laughs> a bunch of her, a bunch of her friends and the moms and I are going to that. So that's, that's awesome. That'll be fun. I saw them play probably. God, it must have been like 15 years ago or something. Maybe 10 years ago. I don't know. It was like early Maroon 5. It was. It was their first album. Actually, wow. I saw them play with John Mayer, and it was huh. it was super awesome. Yeah, yeah, I love them. So that's great. Yeah, well, any any favorite Maroon Five song that we can add to the playlist? Oh, no, not really. <laughs> <laughs> okay, top hits. Yeah, we'll do it. I like um, Sugar. That yeah. one where they go to the weddings and yeah. they and they surprise the the bride and the groom and they pull down. Everybody starts dancing and they do like six weddings in like one shoot. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. Um, so we'll throw that one on. Yes, sure. we will. It and will then, how about are you watching anything? <laughs> yes, I just watched. Um, the Marriage Story on Netflix uh, with Scarlett Johansson and so Adam Driver. So good. Yeah, my wife of the show and I have been kind of sitting on it to wait when like we're, you know, emotionally ready to 
devote our time to watching it together. So that's no, definitely, hard to watch. It's definitely really on the list. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Nice. All okay. right, Roel, what about you? All right, I have I have some stuff here. I have some stuff. So for watching, uh, Watchmen season finale, I didn't watch it last night. I haven't watched it yet either. So I'm like waiting for my day to end so I can go <laughs> watch that. Um, and then um, for songs, um, Billy Joel, The Longest Time. Oh, okay. Yeah, that one's on my playlist right now. And then I did live band karaoke with a band called Shit Hook at the <laughs> Zoo Bar. And I sang Richie Valens, La Bamba, and I killed it. Wow. So, yeah. <laughs> so I was like, I didn't know if I could do it because, you know, um, my Spanish is horrible. I'm like, I'm Mexican-American, right? And and I was basically in like conditions and I spoke more English growing up, which is pretty typical growing up in El Paso. Um, so I'm super, super, super self-conscious about my Spanish. So to be able to sing La Bamba, even though it's pretty simple, um, was really cool. Yeah. So yeah, throwing that one on there. And then for books, um, I have a, a holiday... Um, book that I want to read during the next um, during the winter break on top of working on dissertation work because we're never done working right um, but it's part of the Witcher series the first book The Last Wish mm. The Witcher is coming out on Netflix I think on the 22nd or something so that's supposed to be like the next Game of Thrones so I think I'm going to give that a go there you go mm-hmm. all right how about well, you Cody I, I'll close us out here um, I mentioned last episode that I'm doing another uh rewatch of the office so that's still continuing um that's basically (laughs) what my it is it's just it's a feel-good show like very easy to watch they're nice and short so you can watch it in between things and uh now that the the semester is over for us i have a little bit more time to devote to procrastinating and watching netflix so that's what i'll be continuing to do Um, if I ever want to lure my teenagers out of their rooms, I just have to turn on the office and then they'll all just yeah. kind of come into the living room. Hey, yeah. If it works, it works. <laughs> yeah. That's funny. Yeah. Um, I am continuing to find, you know, try to find different books to read. So I, I finished one that I discussed on the last episode. And so I'm kind of in the market for another one. So perhaps Unequal Cities will be something to to be on the nightstand here soon. Um, I did start listening to a, a new podcast that I really like, which is called Scattered. And it's kind of this exploration of a, a son's relationship with his father after his father's diagnosed with Alzheimer's and kind of, you know, how their relationship changes and things about, um, I guess, his father's past and things of his experience as an immigrant in America and I think is really eye-opening. I'm just a few episodes in, but um, I think a really cool podcast if you're interested in things related to those topics. But I think that's that's all I got going on for me for my weekend review. That's fantastic. Yeah. Well, Babblers, thank you so much for sticking with us throughout season two. Thank you to Dr. Davies for joining us today and sharing her amazing expertise on concussions. And super shout out, like huge shout out to KZUM for bringing us into this wonderful studio and letting us use all of their gear and really valuing kind of the messaging that we've been putting out to share with our local Lincoln community. I mean, for two grad students who are completely unqualified, as we say, (laughs) um, it really means a lot to us that we actually have a voice and we can provide you with, I don't know, we think content that's really important for just the general population to know. Yeah, yeah, so... You know, like we said, uh, to start the show, we'll be taking a short little break here and we'll be back for season three in January. But you can, as always, 
listen and stream all of our episodes at kzum.org slash psychobabble. And hopefully those will keep you busy until we're back with yeah. some new content. And we'll have to find a way to post content to our social media. So you can follow us on Instagram, on Twitter, on Facebook. And you can find basically links to all those on our website that Cody just mentioned. So yeah. all the good stuff. Well, until next time, cheers. Cheers.